You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on December 17th, 2021. Let's have a listen. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. So we seem to have, as so often, a bunch of saved up questions here, uh, but I'm happy to try and address anything about science, technology, etc. All right, we have a question here from Smart. Do you think it's possible to time travel for real? You know, time travel is one of these things that people uh, kind of talk about I don't know when the first time when people really started talking about time travel was. I kind of think the H.G. Wells time travel uh, uh, time machine book from like the late, very late 1800s might have been the first time. Um, But this idea that just like we can travel around in space, so also we should be able to travel around in time is at some level a strange idea. It's a strange idea with respect to our usual experience of time, which is time, you know, you can choose where to go in space. You can go somewhere, you can go back from where you went, you can move around wherever you want in space. But in time, we seem to inexorably move through time and there doesn't seem to be any way to go back. Now, you know, we want to travel to the future, we just sort of freeze ourselves. You know, every time you go to sleep, you're sort of traveling to the future in the sense that your thread of consciousness kind of wakes up the next day and you've... uh, traveled to the future, so to speak. But that's not usually what people mean by time travel. What people usually mean is we can move back to some time in some some place in time and then choose to move forward in time, choose to move backward in time at our choice, so to speak. This idea doesn't really make a lot of sense. The, um, mostly. Uh, let's talk about what it would mean if you went back in time and then time moves forward from where you went back to. So you say, I'm going to change what I did X number of years ago, and then I'm going to sort of relive life going forwards. Well, what will have happened? Well, if you are in the same universe, so to speak, that you were in when you went, quotes, back in time, really what has to have happened is you have to have created this loop where you have kind of consistency between what happened back in time and forward in time. You create kind of, so in a sense, what all that time travel could achieve is having this consistency between what happened in the past and what happened in the future. And there are many ways that are, that achieve that. There are many things that achieve that. For example, if you have a, a pendulum swinging back and forth, it's kind of achieving consistency with what it happens, what happens with it in the future, what happens with the past. And that's in a sense, the, the thing that when you start thinking about you know, models of space-time, for example, that support, quotes, time travel, the official version of that in, in theory of gravity is what are called closed time-like curves, CTCs. And what a closed time-like curve is, is a place where there is sort of this, this connection between the past and the future, that kind of where you are. But what all that's really happening in the end is that you're creating a forced consistency between what happens in the past and what happens in the future. It's not that you in the future can think, oh, am I going to go back to the past today or not? There is a forced consistency of what happened in the past and what's going to happen in the future. 
Now, even this idea of the possibility of closed time-like curves is something that is a weird thing to, to show up in physics, although it's not that hard to understand what's going on. It's just this consistency between what happens in the past, what happens, what's going to happen in the future. But there are models of space-time where you get closed time-like curves that are the result of singularities in space-time and things like this. They're kind of pathologies in the usual theory of, of general relativity, the usual theory of gravity. They're pathologies that actually, it is usually believed are kind of permanently hidden from us by event horizons and so on, by the, the fact that even if there is one of these things, there that you can't, we can never kind of know about it from the outside. So, but um, uh, a, um, uh, in our current models of physics, um, the, the general idea of, of time travel makes absolutely no sense because in our recent models of physics, the progress of time is the inexorable doing of computation. The, the universe is represented as some giant network of atoms of space or whatever, and as you progress in time, there's a computation that's going on where you're progressively rewriting that network of atoms of space. And it's not the case that you can just sort of say, well, I'm gonna jump forwards in time. There's this irreducible computational process that represents the evolution, the, the, the progression in time. And again, when you, if you were to have something like one of these closed time-like curves, all that does is to say this thing that happened in the past must be consistent with this thing that's happening in the future. You don't get to make sort of the arbitrary choice of now I'm going to choose to go back to the past and so on. So I think in the end, I, I think time travel to, is, is something that as such, it's just not a thing that makes any sense. Now, you can get kind of the equivalent of time travel in some ways. For example, what does it mean to travel to the future? It, in part, it's a one-way trip. You know, you kind of are sort of shutting yourself down and only uh, thinking about things again in the future. So your thread of time has this kind of jump to the future aspect to it, although you don't get to go back. In terms of the past, one of the things that I find interesting about sort of the development of technology and science and so on is the extent to which we learn, we can learn more and more about the past. One might have thought that oh, well, whatever is, you know, the only way we know about the past is from books people wrote about the past. But then there start to be all these kind of hints of the past, whether it's from the, the genomes of humans, where we can see from the way that genomes changed and so on, we can see some detail about how some family relation between humans and the distant past or some migration of humans. Or when we look at some archaeological site and we realize, oh, there's this, you know, this uh, plate that people ate food off, you know, 6,000 years ago, and there's a little tiny molecular trace of the food they ate. And we can go and look at the DNA of the little, you know, pieces of uh, sheep meat or something that were on there and uh, deduce things about the, about the types of sheep that existed at that time. This ability to go in and sort of tease out things from history from these little molecular traces is something that's interesting. And, and I think there'll be more of that to come. Uh, but between DNA and these kind of trace amounts of, of different materials and so on, and you know exactly how was this uh, this sword used? Well, we can study the micro details 
of what happened to the sword to know this sword was used in seven battles or something in, in this way and that way. I think one of the, one of the themes here is uh, solid materials often have a trace of their history. In something like a gas, there is ultimately a trace of the history and all the details of how the molecules are moving around, but we are completely unable in the current state of technology to know that history. And, and I don't think that history will be easy to deduce for very far going back in, into the past, or probably uh, at most kind of minutes, I would think. But when it comes to solids, the details of the arrangement of molecules or atoms on the surface of a solid or, or in the interior of a solid will give clues about what happened to that solid in the distant past. It's kind of the ultimate forensic science type of thing. You just look at the every, you know, you can imagine kind of unraveling every atom that you see in some surface. And you say, well, you know, how many times were these keys pressed and in what order? Well, you start to look at every little atomic change that was made, every little piece of, of you know, uh, um, uh, uh, kind of grease from fingers and things like that that went on the keys. And you'll, you know, be able to start deducing that if you look sufficiently carefully at a kind of molecular scale. I think it's kind of the type of thing which, as we get to start doing molecular scale computing better, it's a thing where I suspect there will be sort of a, a, a dramatic advance in the ability to kind of reconstruct the past from sort of details, molecular level details, particularly in solids, of, of, uh, uh, that were left over from the past. So we don't get to do sort of actual time travel, but, you know, for example, one of the things that's kind of the test case is, could we ever imagine finding something which told us what you know, ancient Babylonian languages sounded like. Uh, and obviously we can get clues from, from how they were, you know, the mistakes they made in, in uh, you know, uh, stories where somebody thought they heard one word, but actually it was another word that was being said, you know, puns that were made, things like that, that gives us some clues. But could there be something where there's a material object where you know, somebody was, was uh, uh, you know, talking to somebody else while they were making a, 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 a clay, piece of clay on a potter's wheel or something, and that the vibrations caused some change in the molecular structure of the clay as a result of what they were saying, and that's now burnt in, and 4,000 years later, we can come and decode it. Maybe that type of thing will become possible. I think it's quite likely it will become possible, and we'll be able to do much more sort of detailed reconstruction of history than we have in the past. I mean, I think people are quite surprised, might have been quite surprised that it's possible to know the kind of, you know, we will know the genealogy of the 100 billion humans who've lived probably pretty accurately. We know, uh, you know, we'll be able to gradually start filling in this network of sort of all of the 100 billion humans that, that have lived. And uh, that will give us some, uh, well, we'll probably have uh, interesting historical and other implications. But I don't think sort of time travel in the, in the physical, get in a time machine and go, and set the uh, the GPS uh, or GTS or something uh, to um, uh, to say go to this time. That's that's just not going to be possible. I think. I think that's inconsistent with kind of it's sort of philosophically inconsistent. It's not a, a physical impossibility. It's kind of a philosophical impossibility. Uh, let's see. There's a question here from Asa. Has Darwinian evolution stopped in humans? And if so, are we descending to extinction because of dis dysgenics? Well, gosh, um, you know, what is Darwinian evolution? It's basically 
the, the, the sort of the idea of natural selection is the fittest organisms will make more organisms, will have more children organisms. And so the total number of organisms that you'll get of that type will gradually increase. And if there's some trait, like if you've got a longer beak, you end up being able to catch more fish and then you end up uh, having more children, then that trait will gradually end up being dominant in the population. And, and sort of the basic idea is because there is random mutation and some birds will have longer beaks, some birds will have shorter beaks. The ones that are shorter beaks are kind of the losers and they'll have less children. The ones that have longer beaks are the winners and will have more children and so on. And that is, uh, uh, and that's kind of the, the thing that leads certain traits to become dominant and progressively, maybe, you know, first it's the longer beak, then it turns out it's better to have uh, a, a great big tuft of, of, uh, of feathers on your head or something. And so that will end up becoming a more uh, significant trait and so on. It's worth realizing that evolution can't do everything. Those random mutations can only make small changes. The sort of the big dramatic changes, they happen very gradually. And you can see that in the fossil record, things gradually get longer, gradually get shorter. Sometimes it's like there's a, there's a period of local stability when there's a definite species that's formed. And it's like, this is good uh, in the particular niche in the particular place in the world and etc with the other species that are around this is a good scheme we'll just stick this way for 10 million years or whatever it is and then maybe something changes in the world or something changes in the configuration of other species or just there's a rare mutation that figures out some great thing that ends up being more being a better solution that leads the organism to have more children and so on so what's happened with humans well it's a complicated story because a lot of our technology and, and uh, ways of life have separated the purely biological what's fitter, what's not fitter uh, in terms of what would be kind of the, the raw biology. It's now sort of co-evolving with aspects of, uh, uh, of our technology and our societies and things like this. And, you know, if you have a, a, uh, uh, a place which says, if, if you have, for example, I don't know, a, a, a country which says, you know, one child per family. Clearly that's going to, uh, that whatever traits existed in that population, there'll be fewer of them going forward. If you have a, a, uh, a group, you know, some, some cultural group that says, have as many children as possible, that will, whatever traits existed in that, in that cultural group, will tend, they'll tend to be more of those in the future because there were more children and that's kind of, uh, so it's kind of this notion of kind of choice of, of uh, uh, the, 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 the level of kind of choice of more children, less children, and that will determine how many of those traits exist in the population going forward. So there are other, there are other effects as well. Like for example, there are plenty of diseases that you know, would have killed us earlier in life, so to speak, had it not been for modern medicine. And, it's, it's life expectancies have been getting progressively longer, particularly not, not the, the maximum sort of extension of life has not changed that much, but the fraction of people who reach kind of close to the maximum, that's gotten much, much larger as a result of medicine. Many of the kind of bugs that we know can develop, uh, medicine has allowed us to fix. And so that means that there are things which in the past would have meant that 
you know, that human wasn't going to make it, wasn't going to make it to have children, for example. Um, now modern medicine lets them make it. And so whatever trait it was that would have prevented them from making it to have children, that trait in the past would have died off in the population because they would have, those, those people wouldn't have made it to the, to the point where they have children, um, but now they can. And so that means that trait can survive in the population where it wouldn't have been able to in the past. And you see and an, an different, um, so that, that's, a, that's an, an effect. Another effect is the kind of socio-political forces that determine you know, who chooses to have more children and who doesn't. You know, a very common issue is sort of the economics of having children. There are places where it's just really expensive to have children in a sense that, you know, you have to take care of the children and they cost a lot. And if you're going to have them sort of um, be educationally competitive, they you spend even more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's for some people, that's kind of a socio-political disincentive to, to have more children. And, you know, in a, in a sense, the, the natural selection view of the of the population and there's really no way around it i mean if you if you have if there are more children with certain traits then those traits will be more common in the population that's a uh, that's just a a necessary piece of of the picture so you know at times in the past people have had uh, terrible ideas about about you know right now we think this type of human is is worse than that other type of human and that's something that was unfortunately a, a sort of bad consequence of the natural selection theory. Um, the uh, um, that um, uh, the, the, it was kind of like okay, now we understand how things work. Let's control the course of biological evolution. Disastrous idea. I mean, this was what led to all sorts of terrible things, particularly in the early part of the twentieth century, uh, often around the the word eugenics, sort of. Uh, which you know is from Greek. It's sort of the the good race type thing, and it just it it was uh, it's in the category of of uh, one of the one of the worst kind of consequences of of sort of uh, taking a view of science and kind of saying let's just build society around this as it as it turns out rather uh, shallow view of of what the science implies. So I think that, um, uh, but in it's, it's an interesting question whether we can see, you know, the traits that lead to people having more children, how are they correlated with other kinds of traits? Um, another thing that's true is, is the extent to which, uh, you know, for us humans, where we have, you know, two parents per child, give or take, um, the, uh, except for weird technolo technological approaches, but it's basically uh, two parents per child. It, it, the, the, the footnote there is that the mitochondria, which are, which are in a sense separate parts of our cells could in principle come from another another parent if you if you sort of prepare the um, uh, the if you if you do things kind of in a, in a lab but normally it's two parents per child and um, there are other complicated evolutionary effects like for example there are questions like uh, oh I don't know like for example how much uh, are the how much uh, you know if you have sort of the most efficient pairing of humans and, and sort of humans pair off in a way where they're optimally suited for each other. How does that affect what the, what the progeny are like versus humans who are, uh, you know, very different, who, who have children and so on? How does that affect what the, um, uh, what the, what the future progeny are, are like? And that's, uh, those, are, those are more detailed effects. Then there are other effects, like at what age are people had, having children? That, 
you might think that's irrelevant, but there are things where, okay, so, so much of what's passed down from parent to child is just purely genetics. And it's kind of randomly selected from the mother, father, you know, half from each that, that gets passed down to each child. But there are some other effects. I mean, there, there are, uh, it was sort of a, a discredited view of biological evolution that sort of things that happen during the lifetime of the parent could have a direct biological effect. I mean, they can have an effect of things the parent learnt they could pass on as matters of knowledge to their children, but things that are biologically happened to the parent, could they pass them on? And it became clear that things like various kinds of deficiencies uh, to do with bad, uh, you know, bad access to various kinds of foods and so on, those could be passed on. And, uh, and that's, so that's a place where, again, there's sort of a, a modification to a footnote to the whole Darwinian story um, that, uh, uh, that happens there. But I think it's a it's a um, um, it's a it's a it's a good question. Um, what uh, um, you know? Are we are we descending towards the extinction? Was asked. Um, well, I don't think so. I mean, the population of the Earth is is I think the, it's it's often hard to project what the population of the Earth is going to do. And there are many countries where you can see you know population is going up dramatically, but where demographic estimates show that it will turn over. Sometimes those are accurate, sometimes they are not. Um, it often will depend on, on policies and, and other things and, and prosperity and so on in those countries. But I think the, the general belief is that the population of the world will continue going up, although maybe it will turn over. I mean, a general fact about sort of a, I don't know, geopolitical fact is that in a first approximation, the more prosperous countries have lower birth rates, but that's not completely true. It's not true in all cultural groups within those countries. It's a not a general uh, idea, um, but it, it 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 can be true, and, and that's partly for economic reasons. Sometimes that people, uh, you know, if you're operating a family farm, and you know, children are a really good source of labor for a family farm. And that's the reason in the U.S., for example, where, why people a hundred, you know, a bit more than a hundred years ago, when the U.S. was a largely agricultural agrarian society, why there were, uh, I think, um, you know, it was very typical for there to be very large families uh, who then uh, would be, you know, help help in the farm type thing. Um, and that's uh, in the kind of modern urban lifestyle. It's a bit of a different story um, of, uh, you know, the children are expensive and they don't fit in the apartment and and so on. So it's a, a different different set of motivations. Um, but I think that the um, uh, the kind of um, uh, you know will there come a time when um, uh, uh, when sort of the population? I mean the the the, the certain uh, in uh, you know clearly there are sort of cultural forces at work of some kinds of uh, cultural prejudices or whatever tend to lead to lower birth rates in some in some cultural populations, higher birth rates in others. And so that uh, uh, that will tend to tip the balance of, of those different kinds of things going forward in, in, in time. But I don't think we're in, at risk of, of extinction for, for those kinds of reasons. Uh, let's see, talking of extinction, we have a question from D0 here. How likely is it for a big asteroid to hit the Earth? Not very seems to happen about every 100 million years, maybe, uh, maybe every 50 million years. That's a long time. Um, you know, it's happened a few times, probably, in the history of the Earth, in the 4.6 billion years the Earth has been around. The last really spectacular 
Uh, one, I, I guess you could call it spectacular after the fact, was 65 million years ago uh, in the uh, uh, Gulf of Mexico, the, the asteroid that uh, uh, hit. And it's becoming fairly clear that there are some fossils that were formed the very afternoon that the asteroid hit the Earth of, of dinosaurs that were covered in, in um, uh, I guess, some kind of ash from the... Um, uh, from uh, of pulverized rock from the impact and so on. I mean, that was a, a dramatic moment, I guess. It was, you know, produced these huge tidal waves, produced at that time uh, dramatically this kind of, um, uh, this, this uh, generated a lot of um, small particles that ended up, small, small dust basically, that ended up going into the upper atmosphere of the earth and that basically blocked out the sun for a couple of years. And if you're a dinosaur, Without uh, uh, without good HVAC and good you know heating and so on, it's a bad thing. And to be you know a dinosaur who really enjoyed the the um, seventy degree Fahrenheit um, uh, weather to be plunged into something at thirty degrees Fahrenheit, it's it's not a good way to spend a couple of years. And that was a bad thing for the dinosaurs. I, I think there's pretty good evidence that the dinosaurs were on their way out anyway at that time. But that was kind of probably the the final thing that sort of pushed them over the edge towards extinction. Um, and uh, there were no doubt other, other features. I mean, when you, when you knock the Earth with an asteroid of that size, it, it has all kinds of consequences, probably for things to do with volcanoes and all kinds of other things. Um, that, uh, and the tidal wave, the tsunami that the thing produced probably went a large part of the way across the US and, and all kinds of things like this. So kind of a messy situation. Now, in, uh, is that about to happen? Don't think so. Wouldn't worry about it. And actually, we know it's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen probably in the lifetime of anybody alive today, assuming that uh, human lifespans don't expand absolutely dramatically, because we can track every asteroid and we can everything of, of that size. And it's, it's, uh, I don't think there are any that are believed to be. I think there was one in... Um, 50, 40, 50 years time or something that looked like it might be on a collision course for Earth, but don't think it is. So I think these, these sort of big asteroid impacts, you know a long time in advance. That's one of, the, one of the things that comes from understanding physics and understanding the laws of gravity and so on. So long as you can detect these kinds of uh, asteroids, which you can uh, with telescopes and so on, you can you can see what's coming. Now, the big question is, what would you do about it? Let's say there is a big asteroid heading for the Earth. What do we do? Well, clearly, I mean, there's lots of science fiction movie treatments of what to do in that situation. Uh, the, the, the likelihood is that you can nudge the asteroid because you, so long as you reach it a long time before it's actually going to hit the Earth, you don't have to nudge it very much. Just a tiny nudge, tiny change of angle, tiny change of trajectory, and then it's going to miss the Earth. Maybe it'll, it will be kind of, uh, if, you, if you do the science correctly, having it graze the upper atmosphere and produce this amazing light show might be something people would like, although maybe it's not the best thing to, you know, it's, it's kind of living dangerously to do that. But I think that the, um, uh, it's, it's, it's likely to be possible. How you would do it, uh, not completely clear. I mean, people talk about nuclear explosions. People talk about uh, uh, kind of um, putting... Um, uh, uh, things like just having progressive, uh, 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 if, it's, if, it, if it has uh, ice, for example, water 
ice, for instance, progressively heating up pieces of it so it starts um, spewing out steam, which will push it slightly. And, uh, and I think there's some schemes with radiation pressure, with, um, with putting sort of uh, solar, with mirrors essentially on the thing to gradually use the, the, um, uh, the, the pressure of light to deflect it, those kinds of things. So that's, um, uh, that, that's, that's the story of that. I think that um, uh, people, um, I know a couple of people who are involved in the kind of asteroid defense business, both at the level of uh, uh, having contracts with the US government to like provide the spacecraft to, uh, to also trying to examine just how common are uh, uh, near earth asteroids of the right size. And, and the question of how common they are depends greatly on things like how much light does an asteroid typically emit? Or how, how much does it reflect? Like for, for the moon, for example, the moon looks pretty bright in the sky, but if the moon was a mirror, it would be unbelievably brighter than it actually is. The moon is actually quite, it uh, doesn't reflect much of the light that falls on. I think it's like, like a 10th of the light or something is, um, is what is reflected by moon rock um, from and the rest of it is just absorbed uh, of light from the sun. The albedo of the Earth—that's the the albedo—is the is the uh, ratio of the amount of light uh, reflected to the amount of light received. The albedo of the Earth is a is an important thing to know, and it depends a lot on whether there are clouds and things like that, or whether it's just you know a view of the ocean or something. The albedo of the Earth is important in determining how much the Earth heats up from the light of the sun. Because if you're just reflecting all of that light back into space, you're not, it isn't absorbed and you don't get the heat from, from that. And that's something where one of the ways that one can imagine doing, for example, geoengineering, if you say the Earth's getting too hot, we want to cool it down, how can we do that? Well, we can do something a little bit like what happened to the dinosaurs. That is, we can put some kind of uh, you know, dust-like stuff in the upper atmosphere of the Earth, which will reflect light prevent more, prevent as much of it reaching the surface and reduce the temperature of the surface. It's a difficult decision to say, let's go put uh, little uh, aerosols in the upper atmosphere um, and, uh, you know, and cool the earth down because it's something you don't get to say, we'll just cool down, uh, you know, the, we'll just cool down Kansas or something. It, once you do that, you're cooling down the whole earth. And the, um, and that's something which sort of everybody one imagines would have to sort of agree that that's a good thing to do. And it's also the case that once you've done it, it's kind of like, are you, did you really think through the consequences of this? You know, as you start growing the glaciers or whatever happens as you cool the earth down, is that, is that okay? Or is that, is there some glacier going to overtake some, some town somewhere? Or is it going to prevent ships getting through this or that place? You know, what really are the consequences? And it's, it's usually very hard to work out the consequences of something like that. Let's see. Uh, there's a question here about from N asking, how far ahead can you talk about human evolution adapting with technological progression? Um, I, this is kind of, we're continuing our theme from a little bit earlier about human evolution. Um, I think the question of the, the sort of interweaving of technology with human evolution, there are, one, there are pieces of that that are kind of part of the, the obvious biological story of you know, life expectancies get longer, people who would otherwise not be able to have children are able to have children because of medical advances, these kinds of things. Um, there are also, 
other aspects of sort of technology that change the the landscape of what of where humans I don't know where humans can live. What uh, uh, another thing that's important is is uh, education. The fact that I mean one of the things that's sort of a great uh, invention of our species is the ability it seems uniquely to pass on abstract knowledge from one generation to the next. I mean there are other species that have ways to kind of show some stuff like here's how to fly or something, or maybe they show that, it's not clear they show that, or here's how to, uh, 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 you know, the, the, maybe some, some, some aspects of sort of behavior can be passed on sort of generation to generation by education. But, but we humans with human language and with the things that we've learned about how to do education, we are kind of the, so far as we know, the unique example where you can really pass on knowledge. And, and one feature of passing on knowledge that really affects evolution is the following. If you are a critter that has this idea that you're going to, I don't know, uh, uh, catch your prey by setting traps, doing this or that thing, and uh, or no, you're going, to, you're going to lay your eggs in a particular uh, way on, on beaches or whatever else, and then something changes in the world and you can't do that anymore. Well, you are genetically programmed to do that. And that's kind of all you know. And every successive generation, just it's got that same genetic programming. Gradually, over the course of many generations, maybe the, the thing that randomly mutated to have genetics that caused it to say, actually, we can lay our eggs in a tree or something instead, um, the, uh, the, that uh, will be the one that wins out. But if you have knowledge, if you have education, it's like one species, one generation discovers, no, 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 you don't have to, you don't dig out the sand to put your eggs, you can just put them in a tree. Um, and then you say, let me just tell my children that's what to do and educate the next generation. That's an incredibly much faster way to, to make those changes. And that allows adaptation to, to things that happen in the world. Or, you know, this is the this is the amazing way to be more successful in, in uh, living in the world and, and progressively having more children, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, this is the way to do that. And I think that that's, um, you know, that's a way in which, in a sense, education, uh, which in some ways relies on technology, it relies on things like writing, it relies on nowadays, on communications and so on, um, that makes, makes those kinds of things possible. I mean, it's also worth realizing that there are aspects of evolution that operate not just on the biology of humans, but also on the ideas that humans think about. I mean, the, this kind of notion of memes as well as genes, memes was originally kind of the idea of sort of elements of thought, not necessarily, you know, slogans on, on, on you know, Instagram posts or whatever, that were, um, uh, that were things where it's an idea you know, the idea of arranging society with democracy or the idea of doing this or that thing, of having, um, uh, you know, these, or the idea of doing science or something. These ideas are things that have a sort of natural selection of their own in the sense that they, if, if nobody likes them, they sort of eventually die out. If one person likes them and passes it on to more people, then they gradually get more, more prevalent in the population. And uh, that process is a, is a complicated and sometimes frustrating process to watch because it's not always the case, as is probably the case in biological evolution. The best species don't always win, uh, whatever best means. Um, but uh, 
that's something which sort of affects evolution is this evolution of ideas as well as evolution of the biology of, of, uh, of humans. And I think obviously the, the uh, you know, one critical aspect of evolution is the basic rhythm of evolution is there's one generation, it has children, the children have children, et cetera, and the previous generation dies off. And that is the phenomenon that's happened throughout biological time. And the question is, if there comes a point at which in human evolution that no longer happens, either because we sort of solve the biological problems of uh, effective immortality, or because we decide to sort of go digital and decide that our existence is, is better in kind of the, uh, the virtual world, so to speak, and, and all of our sort of future history is, is played out in a virtual environment. Um, if, if those things happen, then that will dramatically change kind of what has been the, the rhythm of human evolution. And I think it's also the rhythm to some extent of human, uh, of lots of things about human life is kind of like, there's a limited lifespan and this will happen and that will happen and so on. And so there's a set of things that, that uh, people have the objective of doing um, and, but that's, it's a different story if you're kind of, if the biological or digital you is kind of like, well, I'm going to be around in a million years. Let's, um, uh, you know, let me decide what to do today. I've got uh, another 300 million of these days to run, so to speak. Uh, uh, it kind of changes the perspective, I think, a bit um, on, uh, uh, on what, what to do. I mean, certainly something one sees in, in human sort of society and cultural situations, there are some cultures where people are very uh, sort of uh, concerned with this kind of longevity of progression of, you know, we've been doing this for 500 years type thing. We've been carrying on this tradition for 500 years and other places where people are like, what we're doing now, that's what we're doing. I don't really care what the last generation did. I don't care what happened in the past. It's a different kind of rhythm of, of activity. And I suppose that's a, a place where one can see sort of a model of what happens in the case of, uh, of sort of effective immortality of, of how that will play out. And, uh, you know, from some point of view, it might be like, oh, if you've got an infinite time to do things, you won't get anything done today, maybe, or maybe it's, uh, uh, that means it's worth building for the future because you'll be around to, to witness that future. Hard to tell. All right, maybe uh, one more here. Um, okay, there's a question from Eggy here. We're, we're on the evolution thing. Could gene drive technology replace natural evolution in favor of intelligent design? Yeah, well, Okay, so the basic point there is that with gene editing, there is um, a, uh, it, as a result of discoveries made in the last, what is it, 10, 15 years, it's possible to basically target a piece of a genome, including a human genome, and say, just edit this piece of the genome. Whenever you see certain sequences on the genome that look like this, go splice out the piece in the middle and update it and change it to this. And so that's a way of changing uh, and, it, and the thing which is interesting about that is it changes not only if you change the, uh, uh, the, the, the if, if, if you sort of make that change and the organism reproduces and you made that change in the, in the line of cells that will, will be reproduced, then you've changed that species permanently. It's not just you change that particular organism, you change all the children of that organism and, and, and so on, uh, sort of forever. Um, and, uh, uh, okay, this might be my reminder that um, to, um, uh, to wrap up here. Um, 
but uh, oh, perhaps not. No, I think that's some. Um, okay. In any case, um, the uh, uh, so the 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 idea is, for example, one place where people have talked about this when there are mosquitoes that give nasty diseases, diseases like malaria, particularly in Africa, there's kind of this idea, hey, why don't we just modify the mosquitoes? Just put a, a new genetic setup for mosquitoes and sort of push it through that population and just change the mosquitoes so they can't carry malaria and they're harmless and, and it's all good, so to speak. Um, that's a, you know, it's a little bit like put aerosols in the upper atmosphere of the earth it's kind of a hard decision to make because once you launch that, it's kind of hard to, to pull back from it. It's kind of a thing that's going to spread through this population. And, you know, one has to, it's very hard to know what consequences it has. And I think there's a certain degree of, of kind of uh, just how sure are we of the science and technology and so on. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, at what point are we sure enough that we want to make one of these global changes? I mean, I think the, the, the life of this pandemic that we've all been experiencing is perhaps not the best example of, we really know everything about what the science and consequences of different kinds of things are going to be. It's, it's been a, a story of, of many kinds of places where, where it's clear, as one could have predicted, uh, and I, I certainly was aware of some of this, that uh, you know, things weren't going to go quite as, as the most obvious science would predict. And so it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to decide to make those changes. I think that um, uh, there are other cases like, well, there, there are, uh, so, but, but that, you know, that's a place where you could decide, yes, we're going to change the human population uh, or change the mosquito population or change the human population. And one certainly wonders whether in, in the future there'll be kind of this fashion, you know, people will say, I really want my children to have green eyes. Okay, great, we can modify that gene and uh, you know, children will have green eyes, or I really want this or that trait. And, uh, and that could go horribly wrong because it could be the case that say, uh, you know, for example, everybody wants a child who will act like a leader. And then the whole world is full of people who want to act like leaders. This might not end well. Um, I mean, it, it's uh, or, you know, some other trait that, um, uh, that, that might be good in one case, but um, might not play well either for the whole population or even just turn out to play well in the end. Or, or somebody says, I think I really want my kid to be, to have this or that characteristic because it's in fashion right now. I mean, it's, it's like, if you look at, at uh, first names of, of kids, there are tremendous waves of, of, uh, of sort of fashion for different names. I mean, I think uh, my parents always claim that they've been innovative with uh, my first name, which, which, uh, kind of the data shows was definitely not the case. Stephen was a pretty common name uh, when I was born, maybe not as common in England as in the US. One of the things that always charms me about this is there's a, in Wolfram Alpha, if you type in a first name, uh, because it knows the, uh, the, the, the frequencies of different names over the course of time, it can predict for you what the most likely age of a person with that name is. And it really does remarkably well remarkably often, because there have been these big waves of popularity for different names. One thing that always charms me is that I think Stephen was a particularly common name in the, in the US about, so oh, I don't know, 60 to 65 to 75 years ago. And so people and, and everybody who was called Stephen at that time got nicknamed Steve. And so for me, it's, it's just a dead giveaway that if somebody calls me Steve, which is not what people usually call me, 
um, they're sort of guaranteed American over the age of 60. That's uh, then they'll call me Steve and they'll do so pretty much 100 percent of the time. Um, and that was sort of a sign of the of the Stephen bump or something or the Steve bump uh, that, that existed at that time. And that was sort of a fashion in first names. That's a place where people pick something about a kid and it sort of survives over the course of the life of that kid unless they choose to change their name. And often you see these kind of secondary bumps of a name that was popular at one time and, and then it'll be somebody's grandparents' name and, and so they'll name the kid after that. And you see these kind of echoes of, of different name popularities. Well, the same thing might happen with biological traits. It'd be rather weird of this, oh, well, you are, you know, you're 40 years old, so you probably have green eyes because um, uh, that was popular at that time in, in sort of uh, the history of things being developed. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I tend to think these things are, uh, are probably in the category of not a good idea, unintended consequences that are bad. Um, but uh, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, science can achieve some things. And so one has to one has to kind of uh, one has to sort of balance those different uh, possibilities. All right. Well, I think we should wrap up. Uh, for now today, um, but uh, I thank you for lots of interesting questions. I see there are many more that I didn't have a chance to get to here. And um, I think, uh, uh, look forward to doing this again. I'm not sure if next week we'll hit a day where I'll be able to do it, but um, uh, certainly within the next couple of weeks, we should be uh, doing this again. And um, otherwise, uh, if, uh, uh, happy holidays to people if it's that time of year for you. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.